Would you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28? We're going to read verses 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority is, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you uh, for this church and the work that we are doing here in Hermona, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just help us to be a church that does things your way, Lord, and grows your way, not our way. I pray, Lord, that you keep our hearts and our minds open to what you have to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so, here in Matthew chapter 28, this is the Great Commission. In this Great Commission, Jesus lays out a very easy, simple-to-understand way for churches to grow. Uh, he gives very specific instructions about going and discipling, baptizing, teaching the doctrines. You will find that in the book of Acts, they follow this model here. They, they, you, you see this happening over and over again in the book of Acts, that they are doing these things. It's very interesting that in today's world, there's all these movements that decide that this isn't a good enough way to reach people, and they come up with all these other ways. Uh, there's all, all these movements going on about how to get people into church. And so instead of focusing on the gospel, they're just really focusing on getting people in the, uh, in the pews. But we'll see here in Acts chapter 2 at the very end that they followed what Jesus told them to do. And the Lord added to their numbers. So the first thing that they were doing was preaching, testifying, and exhortation. Uh, these three things. This is the, the very first step here. Preaching, testifying, and exhortation. And so Acts chapter 2, verse 40, and this is where we're going to start off this morning, picking up right where we left off last week after Peter just got done preaching his sermon. It says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation. So that's the first thing I want to point out here. Peter was pointing out that they needed to be saved from a perverse generation. The word perverse there, that literally means crooked or corrupted. And so he's talking about the generation of people at that time being crooked or corrupted. literally means altered from what they were supposed to be. Right? So the, the people in general at that time had been altered from what God originally intended them to be. And so Peter is say, telling them to turn from that, to turn to Jesus. Right, And so if we think about it, at that time, it was a very corrupt and uh, bad time to live. I ask you this question, do we think that we're any better off today? Probably not. May, probably a lot worse, Right? So let's go to now. Now in our world today, 
This is a very corrupt and crooked generation that we are living in today. But this also bleeds over into Christianity. All this progressive Christianity that's going on in the world today. There was a, a movement that was started in the 50s. Uh, it started about the 50s. It's called the seeker-sensitive movement. And this started off with really good intentions. Uh, they wanted to make churches more appealing to non-believers who they called seekers, right? So their real idea there was that everybody in the world is really seeking after Christ. And if we would just make ourselves more appealing to them, that they would come to us, right? But people following their own hearts are not seeking after God. But so what they were doing was they, in making their church more appealing, it starts off with the, you know, good things like, you know, music and attracting people in that way. And then it goes into, oh, well, we need to have more of a production on stage. You know, all of these things. Well, then it starts to go into, well, we don't want to say things that are, might be offensive to people like talking about sin and hell and you know, maybe even salvation. We can't talk about that anymore because that points out people's sin. And so you'll see in a lot of these big churches, they don't even have an invitation at the end of their service anymore because they don't want to make people uncomfortable. Remember, it's, it's about getting people in here. So instead of focusing on the gospel, they're focusing on all of these other things to get people into the church, to grow the church. That is what we are up against today. We are the minority. So let's go back to the Bible. Let's focus on preaching the gospel. The first thing that Peter was doing, he preached a message. We talked about this last week. It's a very important part. So we can't be preaching anything else. We have to preach the Bible. We have to preach what God told us to preach. But it also says here in verse 40 that he testified, right? And so testifying is a little bit different than preaching, right? So preaching is preaching God's word, right? Testifying is more personal. It's telling people what Jesus did for you. And so Peter is talking about his personal experience with Jesus after he's preaching the word, right? And so we have to be doing that as well. We have to be sharing the gospel with people. We have to be testifying as to what Jesus did for us. Then the third part of that is exhortation, right? It says Peter exhorted them. So he emphatically is encouraging them to accept Jesus for themselves. And so first off, he's preaching a message. So he's telling them all about the gospel. He's telling them about what the Bible says, right? And then he's telling them about his personal experience. And then he emphatically tells them that they should accept Christ for themselves because of the things that he had just said. So we need to tell people all of those things. We need to let people know that they need to be saved and they can't do it themselves. Jesus has to do it. They need to turn to Christ. 
They need to turn away from all these other things and just focus on the gospel. The next thing that happens here. Now, I will say with that, that is the first thing in the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, make disciples, right? This isn't talking about the discipleship that comes after you're saved. This is talking about literally teaching people to follow Jesus, right? Turning people towards Christ. And so the next thing that is in the Great Commission is talking about baptism. Well, in Acts 2, 41, it talks about this as well, baptism and church membership. So Acts 2, 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word, so the people that accepted what Peter was saying, people who believed, then they were baptized. It says in that day, excuse me, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so first let's look at this here, baptism, right? We've talked about baptism quite a few times, but let's refresh here. Baptism is an ordinance. It's, a, it's one of two holy ordinances that Jesus gives us. That means that it's not just a suggestion, it is a command. It is the first thing that you do after you're saved. Romans 6.4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. And so baptism represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But it also is a signal that we also have died to our old selves, right? That we are to walk in the newness of life. It's also a prerequisite for church membership. You never see baptism happen after uh, they were added to the church. You see it before. And so it is very much a prerequisite for church membership. You see, in Acts 2.41, it says, uh, they received his word and were baptized. And then, and that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so they were baptized, then added to the church. So that leads me to church membership. So what does church membership bring us? First of all, it brings accountability. This is why, one of the reasons why it's so important to be a member of a local New Testament church. It brings accountability. And so this is another gripe I have with some of the modern churches today. They don't care whether you're there or not. You, you're in a room with 100, 200, 1,000 people, and you don't even know the person sitting next to you. And so when you're not there, nobody notices. And so, but in a smaller setting, in a way that a church is supposed to be, is people know each other. It's a family. And when you're not there, people notice. And they don't just call you up to try to get you to come back because they are harping on you or they're trying to get you on something. But they call you and they tell you to come back because they care and they want to see you. I'll always remember when I started going to the uh, First Missionary Baptist Church of La Habra, right? And uh, I remember that 
Pastor Lewis there. Uh, he's now the pastor at Fresno. Um, but when I walked in the door, uh, he shook my hand, right? And he actually made a point to get to know my name. And he, it was every Sunday that he was seeing me. And, he, and when I wasn't there, he was concerned about it. Now, that might not seem like that much to us that have grown up with pastors like that. But me coming from a big church, that was huge. Because, you know, after church on Sunday, you might go out and shake the pastor's hand. Or you might shake one of the other greeter's hands. Or he might not even be there. But even if you did shake the pastor's hand, it was just a, oh, you know, and that was it. He just didn't even was oftentimes just looking past you. And then you meet up with them the next week and still not even a familiar face. Because you have to think about it. If he's shaking 500 people's hands on the way out the door, he's not going to remember you. So that was what I came from. And coming to that where it actually meant something for me to be at church. So there's that accountability there. It's not just accountability in attendance, but it's also accountability in what we believe. So the people are, that at this church are going to make sure that you're grounded. And if you're starting to say some things that are weird, you're going to get called out for it. And that's a good thing. We should welcome that type of correction. Church membership also brings us protection. It brings us spiritual protection. One of the reasons why we have church discipline is not because we are trying to just kick people out because we don't like them, but we put them out of the church. That way they lose a little bit of that protection. And so that that is a wake up call for them to come back. So, being part of this group here, being part of a church, brings us spiritual protection from the enemy. Church membership also brings us support. Just like your own personal family, your church is your family. And people care about you. There's that support there. And these are, this is what God meant for us to do. It also brings privileges. You know, we believe in congregational rule, right? And so if you're a member of this church, you get a say in what the church does. Everybody votes on it. Also, we believe in close communion for the Lord's Supper. That means that we don't allow non-members to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. And that is a privilege to be able to do that, to be able to observe that second ordinance there. So church membership is very important biblically. The next thing after someone becomes a member of a church, and we see this in Acts, we see that it's all about, after that point, learning the doctrine and fellowshipping with the brethren. And so focusing on the Lord, not just by yourself, but focusing on the Lord together as a group. Acts chapter 2, verses 20, or sorry, verse 42 through 43. It says, And they continued steadfastly 
and the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So the first thing, again, continuing steadfastly. That's an awesome thing. So it's not just, you know, moving on, but being steadfast, resolute, sticking with it. But the teaching the doctrine is the next important thing after someone becomes a member. We have to make sure that people are grounded in what we believe. Grounded in the doctrines of the Bible. The biblical doctrines are our foundational core beliefs. These are the things that are the most obvious things in Scripture. We have to be making sure that every person that becomes a member of our family here, of our church, is grounded in biblical doctrines. That also protects us, right? It protects us from false teachings. This is totally, completely the opposite of what the modern progressive Christianity wants you to do. There's this trend going around right now. This one of the another one of these movements. And, you know, I'm I'm sure that some of you have seen this pop up, but people talking about deconstructing their faith, right? Deconstructing their faith, and they see it as a good thing, right? They see it as, oh, I'm getting off all of that baggage of history. Uh, no. Really, what they're doing is destroying the faith. And when you read the Bible, you, there's, faith is a lot of times talked about in a couple of different ways. There's your personal faith, right? But there's also, in the Bible, you'll see the faith. And when it says the faith in the Bible, that is talking about all those biblical doctrines. And so these people that are saying they're deconstructing their faith, they're really trying to just throw off all of those doctrines so that they can be more culturally uh, appropriate. And so, again, focusing on really what the world wants Christians to be versus what the Bible wants Christians to be. We cannot just throw off these things. They are not baggage. They are the things that keeps us true to God's word. So we have to make sure our young people are grounded in these things. Otherwise, they're susceptible to all of, these, every, all of these movements, every which way the wind blows, right? The next thing. So teaching them doctrine. And then this goes along with doctrine. Uh, they, they happen at the same time. So you don't teach them doctrine before you fellowship with them. It's fellowshipping and teaching doctrine. We... We are together on these things. But we have to fellowship with one another. We have to do things together. We have to go through life together. That's what fellowshipping is. And so delighting in the Lord together. Uh, I, I believe it's First John that's pretty much focused on that. Uh, focused on how we treat the brethren, right? We have to be fellowshipping with one another. And new people, especially. We have to graft them into the group. 
Then it says the breaking of bread. So if just saying fellowship wasn't enough, it's added in there, the breaking of bread. And so that is actually having a meal with someone is a great act of fellowship. You know, you're always closer with someone after you've had a meal with them. Have you noticed that? That you always have the best conversations or sometimes the worst conversations over a meal. But regardless, you end up closer with that person. There's a reason why uh, all these salespeople, they take people out to lunch, right? Or, you know, all the business people, they, they do business over a meal because it brings you closer together. And salespeople know that, right? When they're trying to sell you on something big, uh, oh, let's go out to a meal. Trust me, right? But there's something to be said for that, though. Like, you know, they might be using that tactic, but that's a tactic that comes from the Bible. We need to have meals together. And then prayer. It says that they prayed together. We have to be a church that prays together and prays for one another. When people are hurting in our church, we have to be willing to take them inside, aside and say, hey, brother, can I just pray with you right now? It's not really a hard thing to do, but it shows you care, and it shows that you are willing to seek the Lord for that other person. Again, these are all acts of fellowship here. There's another thing in this part of this passage that, that happens. It says, so after they do all of these things together... It says, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So that's a word that people don't really like today, fear. Then fear came upon every soul. Well, this fear that it's talking about here, uh, this is a good, healthy kind of fear. This is the fear of the Lord. This is actually reverence for the Lord. And so when it's talking about them, fear came upon every soul. Well, after they're being taught all this stuff, then it shows that they have this great reverence for the Lord. That is our goal when we are teaching people doctrine, when we are fellowshipping with people. We want to teach people to have that great reverence for the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So fear's not a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing in certain senses. But when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, it is not a bad thing. It is the beginning of knowledge. And it says, you know, if people don't like that, if people don't like that, well, then they are fools because they are despising wisdom and instruction. So if they're rejecting those things, well, that's the, they're a fool. So the aim with all of that is that reverence for the Lord. The next thing we see in this passage here is church unity. Churches have to be together on things. This isn't just fellowship here. This is unity. This is not just, hey, I'm going to hang out with you. No, this is we're going to make decisions together, and we're going to back each other's decisions up. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. It says, 
Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And so it says, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's an awesome thing. You know, that word for common there, that's actually pretty much the same word as fellowship. But again, we have to be knit together. We have to be like one family here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 says, That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge and mystery of God, both, the Father, both of the Father and of Christ. So Paul is saying to the Colossian church that he wants them to be encouraged, being, their hearts being knit together in love. Knit together. So it's not just, you know, we're, we're just separate. We're supposed to be knit together. Then in Philippians, it talks about being of one accord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, then it says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That is the epitome of unity there. So Paul is saying to them, if you have any consolation of Christ, this first verse, if you have any of these things, then you are to do this. So if there's any consolation of Christ, so if we trust Christ at all, right? If we have any comfort from Christ at all, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, so if we are fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, if any affection and mercy. So if you have any of that stuff, Paul says you are to be like-minded. And so we should be thinking about things in a similar way. Having the same love, that being Christ, being of one accord. So, again, when decisions are made, back up those decisions of the church. And then it says of one mind. So, again, thinking about things the same way. So he says all of those things, basically saying the same thing, but getting the point home. Then it says at the end there, let each of you not only look for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So it doesn't say, don't look out for your own interests at all. You are supposed to take care of yourself. It says not only for your own interests. We also need to be looking out for each other. And so all of this, right, screams unity. We should be a unified church on things. You know, there's that saying right divide and conquer a divided church 
will be run over easily. But if you, per, if you have a unified front, and that is much harder to break. The next part of this passage, and again, this is basically summing up the book of Acts here, right? Repeat. <laughs> so you do all of these things, right? And you repeat it. I know that's a simple point there, but we'll see this in Acts 2, 46 through 47. They're already repeating this process. It says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so, simply put, is we are told to do those things we do them, and then we repeat that process. And so as we get more people in, and those people get trained up, then we have a bigger group to go out and get more people, and we keep going. This also should tell us that we are to not be discouraged, right? That this is a long process. This is what we are to be doing until the Lord comes back. This is working for the Lord here. This is how a church is to grow. You repeat this, the, the simple process that Jesus gives us over and over again. If we are focused on that, then the Lord will provide the increase. That last part of verse 47 this is my last point this morning. It says in Acts 2, 47, part B, it says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. And so, is it us adding to the church? No. Like that seeker-sensitive movement. is They're trying to get people into the church through what they're doing. They're not trusting God to do it. We need to be trusting God to add to our church. we got to do the things that Jesus told us to do, and then just trust that he will add to our numbers. Think about this. It is the Lord's harvest. It's not our harvest is the Lord's harvest. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. It says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So we are just the laborers. We're just the workers, right? It is the Lord's harvest. So, it belongs to him, our church. We all belong to the Lord. And any new people that come in, they belong to the Lord. We cannot claim credit for any of it. We're just the laborers. So we have to do our job, right? And so also, God gives the increase. And so it's his harvest. And he is the one that gives the increase. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. It says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. And so, again, we're just the workers, right? If our church is to grow, it's because God decides that our church is going to grow. 
We need to be focused on fulfilling what God told us to do and not worry about whether more people come in or not. If we're doing what we're supposed to do, God is going to bring more people in. Because, again, it's his, and he's the one who provides it. So in conclusion this morning, as the pianist and song leader come, I, I would be a hypocrite if I didn't have an invitation this morning. Because I talked about, you know, these churches that don't have an invitation, right? I would love to see anyone here that's not saved accept Jesus and get baptized and join our church. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to see God working in people. So all you need to do to be saved this morning is two things, right? Repent. Again, turn away from your sins, right? Repent means to turn away. It's actually, that's literally what the term means. So you have to turn away from your sin and you have to turn towards Jesus. You can't just, you know, turn wherever you want. You have to turn towards Jesus. That means in order to do that, you have to say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins, right? And then believe that God sent his son to come and die for your sins. So repent and believe. That's all you need to do. There's no repeat after me prayer that's going to do it for you. It has to come from you. Those two things need to be a part of it. That's the only prayer that God will hear from you. You realize that if you're not saved, the only prayer that God hears from you is that prayer of salvation. Then you can have a relationship with him. So do that this morning.